Thank you, Kathleen. That was beautiful. The Lord is faithful, isn't he? Great is his faithfulness to me and to you. Good to see everyone this morning. Glad that you're here. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. <clears throat> what a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. I just like to say it, don't you? Jesus. What a name. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's powerful. And in chapter 20 and 21, we have the record of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, his death on the cross, 19, his resurrection in chapter 20. Now today we're going to begin in verse 25. For those of you that maybe don't know, we're going through the gospel of John verse by verse, and we just got, oh, a few more weeks. And uh, the setting here in, in, uh, in our text today is the following Sunday after the resurrection. You'll see that. I mean, it'll say eight days, but the way the Jews counted their days, it was the very next Sunday. So what we looked at last week was when Jesus met with his disciples and followers in, in the, uh, on the day of the resurrection. And their sorrow was turned into joy. They were beside themselves with happiness. But there was one person that wasn't there. Thomas. That's right. That's where we pick it up. Look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our time together. Make it profitable, I pray. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for the glorious name of Jesus. It is beautiful. May it be beautiful to each of us in our souls and hearts. In Christ's name, amen, amen. Jeremy was short and scrawny. When he started high school, he was five foot three. And he started high school with great enthusiasm because he wanted to play basketball and make good grades in that order. <laughs> and uh, not many people took him seriously because he was only five foot three. But Jeremy had a plan. Here, here was his plan. Now again, starting out high school, ninth grade, here was his plan. Drink one, two-part two plan. One, drink lots of milk. Two, hang on the monkey bars from your hands for long periods of time. <laughs> Stretch him out. Well, I don't know that the hanging from the monkey bars helped any, but in his high school years, he grew 11 inches, which made him six foot two, which was better for playing basketball. Afterwards, he actually grew another inch, six foot three today. He played basketball, and he played great, and was one of the, the outstanding players. In his senior year, his coach tried to get him some scholarships to play uh, in college, but no one wanted him. And uh, so he had made good grades, 4.2, and uh, so he enrolled at Harvard University. And he just walked on the basketball court, as what, what they call walk-ons. And he made the team. 
Not only did he make the team, he led the team, and they ended up having a winning season for the first time in a long time. And uh, Jeremy was used of the Lord in that setting. Well, he did so good there that it, it uh, enlivened his desire to be in the NBA, to be a professional player. And so uh, he put himself out there. Now he's six foot two. And uh, teams kept passing him by. Finally, the New York Knicks picked him up. And uh, he began to play professional basketball. He played, according to his life story, he began to play the best basketball he had ever played in his life. And it helped turn the Knicks around. And the Knicks began to have a winning team. And the people would shout his name in Madison Square Garden. Jeremy, Jeremy. They even created a new language for him. His last name was Lin, L-I-N. You sports fans recognize that name. I know Jeremy Lin. And uh, so the people in New York, they would shout Linsanity. Instead of insanity, Linsanity. Uh, because he came on the court and, and uh, you know, caused some insane things to happen. Some of the other terminology they used was Lintensity, Lintelligence, Linvincible. Linspiration, Lincredible, and on and on you get the picture. They loved him. And uh, he played <clears throat> for them a couple of years. Then he had some injuries and some problems, but he ended up with the Charlotte Hornets just a few years ago in, uh, not, uh, in 2020 and 2016. He played for the Hornets. You may remember that. And uh, the Hornets loved him as well. And he brought what the... Newspapers would call revival to the Hornets. Here's a couple of headings from newspapers during that time. Jeremy Lin is experiencing a revival in Charlotte. Lin Sanity, here's another one. Lin Sanity revived in Charlotte. And a third one, the quiet revival of Lin Sanity. Revival. It's an interesting word, isn't it? People use it in the secular world an awful lot. Revival of, you know, economic revival. Sports writers talk about teams having revival or seasons. Um, stock market revival, precious metals, property values, even the entertainment world, revival of a vintage Broadway play, and on and on it goes. But there was a certain kind of revival that Jeremy Lin valued more than his, his own revival of his uh, basketball playing, and that was a spiritual revival. He would call it a revival of morality and faith. Through those years, Jeremy Lin was a believer. Not only a believer, he shared his faith, and people knew where he stood, and he stood for Christ. I think that's the reason he grew 11 inches in high school. I don't think the hanging did it. I think the Lord did it. And uh, he was, was and is a great testimony 
for the Lord today. But he prays for revival. Here's something he said, and I'm quoting now. Please pray for global Christian revival. Specific areas that I feel God has put on my heart are Asian Americans. I've, I failed to tell you he's an Asian from Taiwan. And he was the first one to play, first Asian to play in the NBA. He says in special areas, I feel God has led, laid it on my heart for the Asian Americans in the U.S. who are lukewarm in their faith. And then he said, I have a burden for the billions in China who don't know Christ. Obviously care about many other places, but these are very dear to my heart. End of quote. Well, in 2021, he was playing for the Beijing Ducks, playing professional basketball in China in their professional basketball league, the CBA. And he, he got an offer to come back to the U.S., and uh, he came back and played a little, decided to go back to China. Some of the sports writers couldn't figure out why he would want to go back to China and play there as opposed to the United States because he would make so much more. I think the, probably the reason is because he has a burden for those billions of people who don't know Christ in China. And he wants to make an impact on them. He wants to share his faith. He prays and encourages us to pray for revival. Now, I don't think revival will come until there are personal revivals. Personal revival has to come first for us. Then maybe it'll spread to a church-wide revival. Maybe then it'll spread to a community revival or a, even a national revival. But it has to start in us personally. And I see some principles in this passage, in this chapter, if you take the whole chapter, that give us guidelines for revival. I see these men who were discouraged and sad and hurt and ready to give up fearful and uh, their hearts were turned so that they became joyful and at peace and busy serving the Lord faithfully and that's revival and uh, we'll close with some thoughts about revival come back to your text now and look at verse 24 again Thomas one of the twelve called Denimus Thomas is an Aramaic word. It means twin. And uh, Didymus is a Greek word. And it means twin. They both mean twin. So if you have a newer translation, it will probably translate that second word, Didymus, as twin. His name's Thomas, meaning twin. This is doubting Thomas. He was pessimistic. And sometimes fearful. He was committed, but he was pessimistic. You remember one time he, he said of Jesus going into uh, Bethany, he said, come let us go with him that we can all die together. <laughs> 
So he's pessimistic. Whose, whose brother is he in the scripture? We don't know. God doesn't tell us who that twin is. But maybe it's so you and I can look at Thomas and see ourselves looking back in the mirror. Sometimes we are discouraged and down and pessimistic and all we see is what's going wrong and what we don't have and so forth. That was Thomas. So this morning, look in the mirror. You may see a Thomas staring back at you. So he's Thomas the twin and he was not with them. wonder why he wasn't with them on that Sunday evening of the resurrection. Maybe he was discouraged because he was so pessimistic. Maybe he was depressed. Maybe because of all the events that had taken place with Jesus, of course, all that was traumatic, but the rest of the disciples were together, but maybe he was just so downcast, he just couldn't be there. But when you're down and discouraged, you need to come to the assembling of ourselves together more than any time. I hear people tell me every now and then, Pastor, I almost didn't come this morning. I almost didn't come tonight because I was so tired and kindly felt down and everything. He said, I'm glad. Then they say, I'm glad I came, though. Now I feel encouraged and blessed. The assembling of ourselves together, the writer of Hebrews said, don't forsake it. It's important we gather together. And as I have said several times, I think during this period of time, gathering online for some people is a, is a safe, safe alternative. But don't miss it. Think what Thomas missed by not being there that night. Jesus doesn't appear to him till a week later. He missed that whole week of seeing the Lord. You never know what you're going to miss when you miss church. So be here every time you can. Well, Thomas was not there when Jesus came. Verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. Can you imagine the excitement? But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Wow. No wonder he's got the nickname Doubting Thomas. Think, how in, think about how impractical this is. There was ten men and some women too. Maybe some other men too, but at least ten men we know that Thomas knew really well that ten disciples, Thomas being number 11 and Judas being number 12, and he knew these men. He knew how faithful they were to the Lord, how they loved the Lord Jesus. He knew they were honest men. They certainly wouldn't have made this up. He knew they were men who were not easily deceived, and they said, we saw him and touched him and so forth. But he refused to believe. I find it more, more remarkable that he didn't believe than I would if he had believed. Notice that phrase, I will not believe, right there at the end of the text. I will not. When people don't believe, it's because of their own choice. God never forces himself on anyone. You can believe. It's your will. It's your choice. Thomas chose on this occasion not to believe in the resurrection. The... Uh, 
where it says that they said unto him, that word is in the tense, it indicates continual action. They didn't just say it one time, they kept saying it, which of course makes sense. They kept saying to him, we saw him, we saw him, I'm telling you, we saw him alive. And he said, I will not believe until I can touch him and see these things. Look at verse 26. And after eight days again, the disciples were there in. Eight days. Why not seven days? We count, we count the day, if it's Sunday, we count Monday as the first day. But the Jews counted the day they were in. So it would be Sunday, Monday on to Sunday. It would be eight days. So this is the following Sunday. And again, they're gathered together again. And Jesus comes to them. Look at verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them when Jesus came. When then came Jesus. What beautiful words. And the doors being shut. Again, the word shut there indicates locked. And uh, it, it really wouldn't make sense to mention the door was shut if it was just closed because most doors were shut most of the time. Why would you point that out? It's pointed out because the door was shut and locked. And Jesus came into the room again. And we see that distinction of his glorified body. Even though it was flesh and bone, he still, it was not limited to the laws of nature. So, the doors being shut, then came Jesus and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Again, he speaks about peace that he purchased on the cross. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Wow. He knew the exact words that Thomas had said the week before, didn't he? <laughs> and he turned those same exact words. He knows everything we think and everything we say. And so he turned those words back on Thomas and said, here, touch me, handle me. Verse 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now, in my mind, I picture when Thomas said this, he was kneeling in front of Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but that, that seems likely to me, that he knelt down and said, My Lord and my God. This is the, the pinnacle of the theme that John has running all through his book, which is the deity of Christ. This is the pinnacle. Think about it. He started out, the very first verse of his gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John starts his uh, uh, gospel talking about the deity of Christ. From the very beginning, he's always been God. He was face to face with God the Father, but he himself was God, God the Son. And, uh, and then he emphasizes that the deity of Christ all through his gospel, the seven I am's, when Jesus speaks about who he is. 
And, uh, and Jesus said to uh, the religious Pharisees, unless you believe that I am, I am was the name for God in the Old Testament, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. Then he recorded Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he records him saying, the Father and I are one. So that the deity of Christ runs all through, and he kind of gives us insight with his disciples. They first believe him to be the Messiah, then they believe him to be a miracle worker, and then they believe that he is the great teacher, and eventually they come to believe he's the Savior of the world, the only Savior. And then they come to believe he is God in the flesh. And here's the pinnacle of it. This great confession by Doubting Thomas. He calls Jesus my Lord and my God. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios. It's the word that if you translate the Old Testament into the in the Greek, which is what the Septuagint was. The, the scripture Jesus had in his day was the Septuagint, which took the Hebrew and translated it into Greek. And that's a very helpful for us because we can see how those words of the Old Testament correspond with words of the Old Testament. So Lord is the Greek word kurios, but it translates the word Jehovah from the Old Testament. So every time in the Old Testament where the word Jehovah was used, when it's translated into Greek, in the Old Testament it's the word kurios. So when he said, my Lord, he was calling Jesus Jehovah. Jesus is the God of the New Testament, he's the God of the Old Testament. He is, he is Jehovah himself. And then the word God is the word theos. It's where we get our word and words, theology. Theology means the study of God or the science of God. And he says here theos. Theos, again, if you... If you compare Old and New Testament and translate the Hebrew into the Greek, you translate the word Elohim in the Old Testament into Greek as Theos. So he was calling Jesus, who was standing right in front of him in a body, he was calling him Elohim, the God of the Old Testament, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the sovereign one who controls all things from his throne in heaven. The word kurios gives the idea of a master or an owner, one who is in supreme authority. Now think about another word there in verse 28. My, he says, my Lord and my God. He could have said, you are the Lord. You are the God. If he had said that, you and I would have applauded him as well. We would have said, man, what a great statement that is. He's saying Jesus is the Lord. 
Jesus is God. That would have been great. He could have threw some other words in there like, like he could have said, you are the Almighty One. You are the Omnipotent One. You are God Almighty. He could have said all of that and you and I would have said, yes, amen, praise the Lord. But he didn't say that. He made it personal. He said, not only are you the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. That means you're my owner. You're my master. Whatever you say, that's what I will do. Wherever you sin, that's where I will go. He's my Lord. And he's my God. My God, my creator. My sovereign one. So that I don't have to worry about all the affairs of life because the sovereign one is taking care of me. So he cries out, my Lord and my God. Apparently from this context, he never even reached and touched the nail prints like he said he would have to do when he saw Jesus. <laughs> he knew. He knew it was him. And he makes this great proclamation. Look at verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Hey, that's me and you. We never have seen Jesus in the flesh, have we? No. But we see him with the eye of faith. We see him when we look into this book. And this book that portrays him and pictures him in all of his glory and majesty. Blessed means happy and to be envied are those who believe and have not seen. That's us. He's pronouncing a blessing on us. We're blessed because we have trusted Christ. Now look at the uh, verse 20, uh, verse 30. Go back up, if you would, to verse uh, 27. Something I didn't mention. I want to back up and just mention where Jesus said, be not faithless, but believing. Right there at the end of verse 27. Again, that's in the, that's in the verb tense that means stop doing what you're already doing. So it might be, if you've got a newer translation, it may be translated like this. Stop your faithlessness and believe. So he says... Stop being faithless. I wonder what the Lord would say to us. Maybe he's, he's saying to Thomas, stop being faithless and live like I am risen from the dead. I wonder if he was to speak to us, he might say, stop being so faithless. Stop living like I'm still in the grave and start living like I'm resurrected and alive and right here with you right now. And then we come to verse 30. And many other signs, that word can be translated miracles. You remember there's 35 miracles recorded in the Bible attributed to the Lord Jesus. But on 
quite a few occasions in the New Testament it says Jesus healed many or he healed everybody that was there. So the 35 are the ones we have the details about. There was many, many more miracles performed. But John chose to only talk about seven. That's the seven miracles that we've looked at as we were going through the book. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, and that he is God who uh, has come in the flesh. He is God's special, unique Son. And that believing you might have life through his name. Believing, believe, is one of those favorite words of John. He uses it over a hundred times in his gospel. The word life, which sometimes is attached to eternal life or everlasting life, he uses 36 times in his book, the gospel of John. So this book ought to lead people to believe. And believing to have eternal life. Now I want to close with this thought about personal revival. If you look back at your screen for a moment, and uh, as I said earlier, all revival starts with personal revival. I'm not working, gentlemen. You may have to move that for me. Move it to... There you go. Let's see if I can move that. Yeah, I can move that. Okay. Guidance for personal revival. First of all, believe and know that you have eternal life. You know, a lot of God's people struggle with knowing, having assurance. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, His promise is, your sins are forgiven. I remember your sins no more, He said. Remove them as far as the east is from the west. Cast them into the depths of the sea. If you have put your faith in Christ, you have eternal life. Claim that. Claim your assurance. Security comes from the blood, but assurance comes from the promise of the word. So claim it. Jesus said, or the word says, call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Claim that and know that you belong to Christ. And then secondly, yield to his lordship personally. My Lord. You might say, oh, I, I remember I did that when I was a teenager at a revival meeting or something like that. Or, but this is something we have to redo. This is a commitment we have to remake. This is something we have to do on a continual basis. Yield to his lordship. And bow him and use the words of Thomas. You're my lord. I'll go anywhere you sin. I'll give anything you want me to give. You're the Lord of my money. You're the Lord of my time. You're the Lord of my lips, what I'm going to say. You're the Lord of my mind, what I'm going to think. Yield to his lordship. If you do that, of course, you will confess your sin because you'll know, yielding to him, you'll know he doesn't want that sin in your life. And when you slip up and do, you'll confess it. Yield to his lordship. And then thirdly, trust him as God personally. You're my God. Nothing can touch me. Cancer can't touch me. 
COVID can't touch me. Nothing can touch me but what you let touch me. And if you let it touch me, then it's for my good and for your glory. You're my God. You're big. You're on the throne. You can take care of me. Trust him as your personal God. And then the fourth thing, receive his peace even in troubled, troubling times. A lot of God's people are just anxious and worried and fretting all the time. They're just unhappy. That's sad to see. Jesus said, I will give you peace, not as the world gives, but I'll give you my peace. Let not your heart be troubled. Remember, that's what he said to them in the upper room that night of the resurrection. And then trust him to breathe on you the fullness of the Spirit. We talked about that last week. You could even use that terminology, bow before him and say, Lord, breathe on me your fullness, the fullness of the Spirit, and fill me, control me, empower me, enable me to do what I can't do on my own. And then go live and serve. You remember what he said after he breathed on them? He said, as the Father hath sent me, even so I send you. <clears throat> you might say, well, where's he sending me? Well, he may send you across the ocean on a mission field, or he might just send you out your front door and across town to your workplace. And all the places you go to, he's sending you so that you can live the life of Christ and people can see him living in you. So go live. Live with kindness. Live with love. Live forgiving people. Live without being bitter at work. Don't let the, pe the lost people or the carnal Christians at work, don't let them see you angry and upset and bitter and frustrated with everybody and everything. Take your peace from Christ. From Christ alone. The world will never give you peace. But you can take it from Christ. Receive it. And then go and live it. Live it and serve. Find something to do serving Christ. There's something all of us can do. And we should be doing it and even more. Putting our hands to the plow. He said, as I have sent you, or as the Father sent me, even so send I you. And then one last thing. Worship the risen Lord. Not just on Sunday morning like we've just done singing together, but worship Him every day. Adore Him, worship Him, sing to Him. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. And He's with you every minute of every day. Worship the risen Lord. Now let's watch the little clip together. It may have looked something like this. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands, and put my finger on those scars, and my hand in his side, I will not believe.
A week later, the disciples were together again indoors, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Then reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. My Lord and my God. because you see me. How happy are those who believe without seeing me? In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you may have life. Amen. Stand with me, please. We'll sing a verse or so of invitation. If you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come. But maybe just right where you're standing, you would say, Lord, I want personal revival. And then put those principles into action. Let's sing together.